We are in week two of a journey towards Easter. Uh, this is known as the season of Lent and been being celebrated by Christians of all different denominations and traditions all over the world. And uh, during these six weeks, which lead us up to Easter Sunday, we are inviting you together on a journey of learning to practice reconciliation. And so last week we talked about um, instead of or in addition to some of the more traditional ways that Christians typically observe Lent, which would be through fasting or what in general would be called disciplines of abstinence, meaning I'm going to say no to something for 40 days, we're actually calling the community into a season of disciplines of engagement. That during this time, as we prepare for Easter, as we go through this season that's typically one of reflection and preparation and confession, that we're actually uh, learning together uh, how to live the life of Jesus. And so um, if you don't have one of these books, this is going to be our guide for uh, the next six weeks. And I think we've actually got some around. If you want to slip up your hand real quick, you want to get one of these. It has a place for the sermon notes each week. Uh, it also has the scriptures that are going to guide us, and then each week has a set of uh, practices that we're encouraging you um, to go further with in, in, in the other six days of the week, as well as some recommended readings if there's a particular topic that really grabs your attention and you're looking for a good book. And so we will be uh, on week two, which is uh, the practice of formation. So first, a word about this whole idea of practicing our faith. Um, sometimes, within the greater society, a couple more hands down front, ushers, keep ushing. <laughs> um, sometimes, living in a pluralistic society, we hear people of other faiths or other cultures refer to themselves as a practicing or non-practicing Jew, or practicing or non-practicing Muslim, or Catholic, or whatever it is. And so when somebody calls themselves a non-practicing Catholic or Jew, they're saying that they identify deeply with the culture, the tradition, the symbolism of that particular faith, but really that faith doesn't inform their day-to-day -day life, right? Um, so there's nothing on a regular basis that they're doing as an expression of that faith. It's just kind of culturally something that they either grew up with or identify with for one reason or another. So, for example, I just I once heard a Jewish comedian claim, I'm not actually a Jew, I'm just Jew-ish, right? <laughs> um, so we have this paradigm for a non-practicing uh, member of faith. And then on the other hand, for somebody to describe themselves as a practicing Jew or Muslim or Catholic or whatever it is, would mean that for them, their faith is not just a set of theological doctrines that they ascribe to, and it's not even just a moral code that they strive to live by, but for them, their faith is actually expressed in a set of practices that they shape their life around. So it could be practices of prayer, praying at different times throughout the day, reciting a certain set of prayers. It could be a practice or a, a rhythm of worship or of confession. It could be a practice that has to do with a dietary code that they're following, such as certain foods they eat or don't eat or that sort of thing. It could be practices of meditation or practices of charity or, or whatever it is, um, the idea is that if somebody truly is a practicing member of their faith, that if you were to spend a week living in their home with them, and you were to observe their life, that you would be able to see very clearly how their faith is central to every part of their daily life. And it's actually something that shapes their identity and something that affects them uh, in very practical ways, the idea of practice being practical. Okay? So we have a paradigm when it comes to other faiths for being practicing or non-practicing. But the reality is we actually don't have that distinction within the Protestant Christian tradition, do we? Do we even know, other than semi-regular church attendance, 
what it would look like to be a practicing follower of Jesus. What would be those practices that would mark our lives? Right? So, um, we know what a professing Christian is. Somebody who claims to believe the teachings of the Christian faith and the teachings of the Christian Bible. But what is a practicing Christian? And if there is such a thing, is that something we should want to be? If someone were to come live in our home with us for a week, someone of a different faith or worldview, what would they observe in our daily lives? Other than occasional church attendance, would our faith in Jesus actually be visible? Or in other words, if following Jesus were against the law, would they have sufficient evidence to convict us? And so what we're doing during the season of Lent is calling the Antioch community to consider what it actually might look like to practice our faith in Christ. And that is to truly be Christian and not just Christian-ish, right? And so my theory is that one of the reasons we don't have this paradigm within Protestantism is because we hold so strongly to this gospel of grace that says we don't earn God's favor or approval through religious acts or through being good and trying hard, that our standing with God, our salvation, is a gift from him that's not based on what we do, but it's based on what Christ has done for us. Do I believe that? Heck yeah. Absolutely. At the center of the Christian gospel is the idea of grace, that God gives us his love, undeserved on our part, unmerited by anything we do. And so we take this idea of grace, but what happens is we often take it to a place of what Bonhoeffer would describe as cheap grace, right? Where we go, I'm good now. God's paid my emission, so I'm just going to keep on living however the hell I want. I don't need to do any religious stuff or keep any rhythms or rituals or whatever. I'll go to church every once in a while, but, uh, but I'm saved by grace. That would be cheap grace. That would be not the vision that Jesus had when he came and lived among us and suffered and died for us and rose from the dead and imparted his spirit upon us. Not just so that we could go on living the same way we were living before, but he calls us into a deep union with himself. And he invites us on this adventure to be conformed or transformed to his image and likeness. And invites us to imagine what would our life look like if Jesus were living it. And so when we talk about the idea of becoming a community of practice or practicing our faith in Christ, we're not talking about trying to get our number up or score points with God. We're talking about learning to become who we are. We're talking about following Jesus, meaning we're going to have to leave where we were to go where he's taking us. We're talking about becoming a new kind of person, tapping in to our true self, our, the new creation that God has made. So it's not legalistic. It's not law. It's not working hard to get God to like us. It's that God has already loved and accepted us in Christ and is inviting us on a journey of grace. So that's what this is all about. And so there's six practices that we have articulated that are marking not only this season and this series, but really what we believe God is calling us into as a church. And they correspond to the six domains in our vision of reconciliation. And so the idea is that God is on a mission through Christ to reconcile us to right relationship with himself, with ourselves, with one another in the church, in the city, and in the world, and to invite us to be part of reconciling the rest of creation, the non-human parts of the world that he's made. And so for each one of these 
or each one of these domains of reconciliation, if you will, the boxes that make up our cross, which hopefully you remember, there's a set of practices. And so when we talk about communion, where we started last week, we're talking about practicing reconciliation with God. Formation, practicing reconciliation with ourselves. Community, practicing reconciliation in the church with one another. Hospitality, practicing reconciliation in our city. Justice, practicing reconciliation in the world. And Sabbath, practicing reconciliation within creation. So that's the six-week journey we're on. And the hope, again, is not just to give a bunch of information or interesting ideas, but to actually call one another into a season of practice and disciplines of engagement. That let's actually do some of this stuff together and see how God might show up and grace us with his life and with his love. So, those are our six practices. They are biblical, they are historic, they are largely agreed upon by most traditions of Christianity. There's lots of other ways you could frame this up. There's lots of other terms or ideas that you could come and say, here's what a practicing Christian looks like. But for us, this is our best stab at it in a holistic discipleship that actually isn't just about professing our faith, but living it out for the glory of God and the joy of the world. So, does that make sense? Okay, that's what we're doing, talking about practice. Okay, today we're on number two, formation. The idea that part of God's mission of reconciliation in the world is restoring us into a right relationship with ourselves. And I'm going to say this of the six is one of the ones that's probably the least familiar and most confusing for many evangelicals. This is one that's going to feel like a little bit of a stretch from where, uh, from a lot of the, the teaching that we've heard over the years, but I think it's incredibly important. And I guarantee you, it's nothing new or original. This is built in to God's vision uh, for the world and for reconciliation. And so when we talk about formation, I'm going to just try to take us on a journey uh, this morning that will help us come to a working understanding of what we mean by practicing formation. It starts with this, that a biblical understanding of humanity, or a biblical anthropology, if you will, includes the idea that each of us is in a relationship with ourself. You are in a relationship with yourself. Now, for some of you, that may be a no-brainer idea that you have known uh, for a really long time. And for others of us, that sounds odd or confusing or maybe even kind of a light bulb kind of idea. But this is an assumption throughout the scriptures that each human, as an image bearer of God, is living in a relationship with ourselves. So let me just show you one, one way that we see this in the scriptures. It's in the book of Psalms. And we know that the book of Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible. It was Israel's songbook. And how they would be formed in their faith is by singing and praying these songs and these prayers together as a community. And so the, the Psalms are, are uh, authoritative even for us today, in understanding what kind of relationship or dialogue does God desire his people to have. So we pray through the Psalms to learn the language of God, to learn the language of prayer. And there are multiple places in the Psalms where the author, the songwriter, is writing songs to God. The, the audience and the songs that we sing often here on Sundays, we sing songs to God, addressing him directly. But there's a whole bunch of places in the Psalms where the author has a different audience, a recipient in mind. So one is Psalm 103, where the author says, Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Not the band, like the bird. Who is the author or the songwriter writing to? His own soul. He's talking to himself. 
And this is in our scriptures. This is in our, our songbook. That part of this relationship with God and a healthy, mature Christian spirituality apparently includes acknowledging that I'm in a relationship with myself, one that's marked, just like every other relationship, marked by communication, by speaking to myself and listening to myself. And so in this case, the author is, is reminding himself to praise God because he doesn't always feel like praising God. And he's going, no, remember, Pete, praise God with everything you have. And here's why. He's done all these things for you. This beautiful, like this is way before the power of positive self-talk. This is actually a godly vision for self-relationship. There's a couple more. Psalm 42, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So in this situation, the psalmist is in pain, dealing with depression or anxiety or fear or doubt of some kind. And he's taking stock. He's paying attention to his own heart, to his thoughts, and to his feelings. And he's speaking to himself. One last one, Psalm 62. Yes, my soul, find rest in, rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he's my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress, and I will not be shaken. So again, these are all throughout the Psalms. The authors modeling for us and inviting us as the people of God to be active participants in an ongoing dialogue between us and ourselves. Interesting idea. So that's point number one on this journey. You, according to the Bible, the biblical view of hum humanity, are in a relationship with yourself. Okay? Second is this. That your relationship with yourself, just like any other human relationship you have, can either be a healthy one or an unhealthy one. Just like every other relationship, our relationship with ourself has been damaged or compromised by the presence and reality of sin. Our own sin and the sin that's been done to us or in our presence has damaged and torn the relationship that we have with ourselves. So in the beginning, in the garden, in the way the world was supposed to be. Humans lived in right relationship with themselves, but as soon as the fall occurs, that relationship, just like all the others, was damaged. And so the reality is that we have this relationship with ourselves, and some of us are very in tune with that and work hard at that relationship. And for others of us, that's a very interesting and new idea. For some of us, we feel like we have a really healthy, thriving self-relationship. For others of us, it's a really damaged or neglected one. And for some of us, it's, it's, or for most of us, it's both and, right? There's parts about me that I really love and enjoy and accept, and there's parts about me that I really don't like and that sort of thing. So all in all, I would say for most of us, if we had to post the status of our relationship with ourselves on, on Facebook, what would we say? It's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> Which would be the reality for many of us. And especially for Christians, we have a complicated self-relationship. We have a hard time understanding how we ought to relate to ourselves. Because there are places in the Bible, and even meta-themes in the Bible, in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, that would call us to deny ourselves. Right? And to say no to ourselves and to deprive ourselves or something like that. And all of that's there. And so we're conflicted and it's complicated. And the truth is that growing up in the evangelical church, I don't remember hearing anybody talk about the idea that I was in a relationship with myself. And five or six years ago, that realization came to me. 
that not only am I in a relationship with myself, but that relationship, I realized, was not a healthy one. Meaning, I found that I would say things to myself, hurtful, painful, terrible things, that I would never say to anybody else. That when I failed to live up to my own standards, or when I did that thing again, or whatever it was, under my breath, I would be insulting, verbally abusing myself, speaking to myself in a way that I would never talk to anyone. And I even realized that I was neglecting myself. And when I say self, I mean my whole self, the outer and the inner, the physical and the immaterial, that both my soul and my body were not well cared for, not well loved, not well attended to, and were starving for some attention. And it's not that I had consciously chosen to have a bad relationship with myself or to treat myself poorly. The reality was that I was totally ignorant. I didn't even realize that I was in a relationship with me. And so some of you, maybe that's where you are on this journey as well. Understanding this relationship exists and diagnosing that it's one that's been neglected and unhealthy. And so the good news is that this gospel, that God is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus, and we say reconciling, we mean restoring into right relationship, it includes the relationship that each of us have with ourselves. It's not something we just have to say, that's how it's going to be, but it's something that Jesus wants to pay attention to. He wants to call us in this journey of formation. This journey of discipleship, of becoming who we are, of learning how to live in a right, restored, mature, healthy relationship with ourselves, no matter how broken that relationship is at the moment. So what does this reconciled self-relationship look like? What would that even be? To have a healthy relationship with yourself. Well, the first aspect of it, to me, is obvious that if I'm going to have a good relationship with myself, I need to know myself, right? If you're going to love your neighbors, I would suggest that you probably meet them first, right? Otherwise, they're not going to feel a lot of love. If you're going to come into a healthy relationship with yourself, you've got to meet yourself. You've got to see yourself. You've got to know yourself. Think about this famous place in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is teaching this early community of his followers about the kind of life he imagines for them together. What would it look like for them to practice his kingdom on earth? And he does this, this familiar text to us. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Hold that up there for a second. Familiar passage to many of us. And for the most part, we come to this teaching of the plank in the eye and assume that the main thing Jesus is teaching is that we shouldn't be judgmental. Right? This is one of the two verses in the pot smoker's Bible. The first is that God gave every seed-bearing plant, and the second is don't judge, right? (laughs) That's not primarily what he's getting at here. What is Jesus actually trying to impart to his disciples? He's hoping to impart the characteristic of self-awareness. Then in Jesus' mind, somebody who is pursuing the life that he's invited them into is somebody who, in his words, is paying attention. Paying attention to themselves. Paying attention to their life. Paying attention to their sin. Paying attention to their hearts, their motivation, their thoughts. Just like the psalmist going, my soul, why are you downcast? He's paying attention. And Jesus is saying, 
my vision for my people living as an expression of my kingdom in my world is not going to work if everybody's going around ignorant of their own life and stuff and only paying attention and calling out everybody else's. So of course, this is hard for us to imagine, but there was a day when, the, when Jesus' followers had a reputation for being hypocrites. I know we can't relate to that anymore. It's no longer part of the deal for us. No, way back, way back. Hypocrisy is a symptom of this disease of a broken relationship with yourself, of not paying attention. And so the journey towards a healthy relationship with self starts with self-knowledge, starts with paying attention, with watching our life. And the metaphor here is a beautiful one. It's familial in your brother's eye. This is the picture of the family of God living life closely to one another, having hard conversations with each other, getting close enough. I mean, think about removing something from somebody's eye. That's not something I want you to do if I don't know you that well or if you've had a few drinks or whatever it is. That's something that requires me to trust you and allow you to get really close to me, close enough to hurt me. So he's going, if we're going to be that kind of community that's actually able to lovingly, carefully help one another towards Christ, then it starts with each of us not going around focusing on everybody else, but paying attention to ourselves. And then, and only then, are we actually able to see clearly to help one another. Okay? So in addition to not being judgmental hypocrites, Jesus is calling his disciples to a life of pursuing self-awareness or self-knowledge. Um, there's this thing called the Johari Window that psychologists have used for many years when it comes to helping us understand our knowledge or understanding our awareness of ourselves. And so the idea with the Johari window is that each of us has all four of these places within our lives, okay? And so we have those things that we know about ourselves, those things we don't know about ourselves. We have those things that other people know about us and the things that other people don't know about us. And so we each have open places in our lives, those parts of us that are known both to us and to those around us. And then we have hidden places in our lives, those parts of us that we know about ourselves, but we keep hidden from others so they don't know. And then we all have blind places in our lives, places that others, things that other people know about us that we don't know about ourselves. And then finally, there's the unknown. Those things that only God knows that aren't known to us or to others. Now, they're probably not perfectly equally sized when it comes to the composition of our being, but every single one of us has open, hidden, blind, and unknown spots. How does it feel to know that you have blind spots? That there's something about you that other people know that you don't. It feels kind of vulnerable, doesn't it? It feels kind of weird. I got good news. It's not necessarily bad. How many of you assumed it was bad? There's good things about you that everybody else knows that you don't know. And so here's the idea. There's three secrets that are deeply controlling each of our lives as it relates to our self-knowledge. The first is that there's something about yourself that you don't tell others. Those hidden places in your life, the things that you keep just for you for whatever reason, for shame, for guilt, for fear of being truly known or rejected. And then there's number two, there's something about yourself that others don't tell you. They're afraid to have that conversation or to go there or, it, you know, it's the whole plucking things out of eyes that just kind of sounds messy and I'd rather not do that. And thirdly and most importantly, there's something about yourself that God wants you to know. And so my conviction is that in this journey of discipleship, that transformation begins when the unknown becomes known. 
when that, those things that God wants us to see, to pay attention to, to be aware of, when those are brought into our awareness, the journey of a reconciled self-relationship begins. And so not only does the Bible assume that we're in a relationship with ourselves that's been damaged by sin and is being restored by Jesus, but we are commanded frequently to be active participants in the reconciliation of that relationship. Not to just be passive observers and hope that somehow I get better or more mature or healthier, but the Bible commands us repeatedly to, to work at this, to partner with the Holy Spirit as he forms Christ in us. So 1 Timothy 4, for example, he writes, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is one I need to pay special attention to. This book, 1 Timothy, is written to pastors or to those in spiritual leadership of all kinds, I think, would be applicable, including parents, including friends, including brothers and sisters in the faith as we try to influence and lead and help and teach others. He goes, before you do that, make sure you watch your life. Not just your doctrine, not just your beliefs and what you profess about Christianity, but watch your life. Pay attention. Another place, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes, examine yourself to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Paul's saying, here's how you pursue sanctification, healthy self-reconciliation. Examine yourself. Stop. Create space. Create time for self-reflection, for self-examination. Think about your day at the end of the day. Think about everything you did and what was going on within you. Why did you do that? Don't just think about your sin. Think about the sin beneath your sin. It even says test yourself. Many of us go to doctors or dentists on a regular basis for examinations and tests when it comes to our physical body. And Paul's saying, what would it look like to do that with your inner life? To have time and place and people that you're able to go to, to test, to examine, to pay attention to. Who am I and what's going on within me? Straight out of, out of the New Testament. And so throughout the history of the church, some of our best thinkers have caught this vision and understood that part of the reason that the Bible teaches us to partner with the Spirit in the reconciliation of our relationship with ourselves is because knowledge of God and knowledge of self are so deeply entwined. So St. Augustine famously prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. He understood this connection, that through knowledge of self, there was an opportunity to grow in knowledge of God. And even John Calvin, who's a famous theologian, but not really the kind of guy you think is going to be talking about this lovey-dovey liberal stuff, you know, of self-love. Listen to what Calvin says. In the very first line of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, it's a 15,000-word um, classic text. He says, Nearly all wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God, and without the knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. So this is just an example of some of the early formers of the Christian tradition who were and the teaching and view of the scriptures when it comes to humanity and reconciliation and maturity and health, and they're saying, this isn't just about some sort of personal enlightenment that we're trying to arrive at. But he's, they're saying self-knowledge has everything to do with our knowledge of God. 
And so the basic idea, there's many layers of depth to that idea, but the basic way I would sum it up is that we understand the Bible to be a sacred text. And it's inspired by God for the sake of us growing in an awareness of who God is. In other words, the purpose of the Bible is what we call revelation. It's God revealing himself to us in a sacred text that he has inspired. And so this is a gift. This is a gift. God reveals himself, puts it in a book, and hands it to us. And so we come to our knowledge of God through the teachings and the writings of the scriptures. I think you can think about yourself in a similar way. Just like this is a sacred text, you are a sacred life. Your existence is inspired by God. And just like God wants to reveal himself to us through the scriptures, he also wants to reveal himself to us through our own life. In other words, he doesn't want us just to have second-hand knowledge of him. He doesn't want us just to settle for reading or believing what other people have said or experienced of him. He wants us to have a first-hand experience of him. He wants our life to be a sacred text that reveals his character and his nature and his love and his power. So yes, we look to the scriptures to figure out who God is and what God's like, but we also get to look to ourselves, to our lives. And many of us have gotten good at this, paying attention to how God has showed up and moved in our story. And oftentimes, as we know, it's the places of pain. It's the places of brokenness, the places of loss. Or even though we'd never want to live through it again and never wish it upon anybody else, in those places, we met God. And they're sacred gifts, no matter how hard they are. And so knowledge of self, knowledge of God, go deeply together. And that's the first step towards this journey of a right, reconciled relationship with self. Pay attention. Examine your life. Watch yourself. Create space to reflect on your own story, on your own past, on your own family of origin, on your own journey of trauma and pain and loss, as well as all of the beautiful, joyful things about you. Learn to know who you are. So this self-knowledge Everything's got three for me. Do you know that? There's three steps to everything or three parts to everything. Sorry about that. But if it's just two, it feels like divisive. You have to choose. If it's three, then it's all good. So I'm a peacemaker. That's something I know about myself. When it comes to knowing ourselves, the first thing we need to know is that God loves us. That's where we were last week, right? That you're united with Christ, and so our security in standing with God is that God loves us in Christ. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know about yourself or the way you need to know yourself is as a sinner. Okay? So we know ourselves first and foremost as deeply loved, which is significant. For many of us, the first thing we believe about ourselves, even from a Christian perspective, is that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. The first thing we hear about ourselves is that I'm broken. The first thing we hear about ourselves is that I deserve death and hell and eternal separation from God. Well, the truth is, all those are true, but it's not the first thing that's true about you. First thing is that God made you, knows you, loves you, and is redeeming you just as you are. You are deeply loved. And you're a sinner. You're a deeply loved sinner. Like we said, it's complicated, right? Listen to Paul wrestle with this reality in Romans chapter 7. The idea of being a deeply loved sinner. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. 
For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if what I do not want to do, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Okay? It's complicated. This is a, a guy who knows and understands the heart of Jesus probably better than any other human who's ever lived. And his relationship with himself as a sinner who's dearly loved, who's both an old, man, an old creation and a new creation, or what he would later call the flesh and the spirit, are living in conflict with one another. And so this relationship with ourself, knowing ourself rightly as God sees us, has to do with the security that I'm one with Christ and I'm, and I'm accepted and loved by God just as I am. And at the same time, there's this internal struggle where I am not yet living as the one I really am. This is the description of somebody who is being formed. This is the journey of formation. This is the journey of following Jesus practicing our faith, and letting his life become our life. And so many of us rec recognize Paul's struggle here and resonate with it and understand how that feels to be frustrated with ourselves. I want to show you a short uh, music video. It's not really a music video, just a video of a guy singing a song. Uh, his name's Andy Gullihorn. And he's a singer-songwriter from Nashville, one of the good ones. And this is a picture of somebody who is wrestling with himself in a beautiful and honest kind of way. It's a low-quality recording, but I hope you, can, uh, hope you can appreciate it. Have you ever been so selfish that you'd let your baby cry while you finished up a video game? I haven't either. <laughs> That's pretty bad. <laughs> Have you ever stretched the truth telling stories to your friends so they'd be a little bit more amazed? I haven't I'd never do that. <laughs> there are some people out there who aren't completely sincere. What they show in the daylight is not exactly what's in the sun. It's a form of protection. Being rejected, but you and I can be so glad because we are not like that. Have you ever made a promise to yourself a thousand times just to break it over and over again? I haven't either. Oh, only people with problems do that kind of thing. <laughs> Have you been so full of doubt that you just can't pray to God? Cause you wonder if He even exists. I haven't either. There are some people out there who aren't completely sincere. What they show in the daylight is not exactly what's inside. It's a form of protection from being rejected. But you and I can be so glad 
we are not like them. Who am I kidding? Who am I kidding? I am just like them. No I'm only kidding. Have you ever felt compelled to get a weight off of your chest? You can't follow through because you are ashamed. Well, I've heard that you can tell the ones who truly open up because their lives are marked with freedom and with peace. And I don't have you. So that's a glimpse at what a healthy self-knowledge of knowing yourself as a sinner looks like. This internal struggle between who we are and who we really are. Between what we want and what we really want. And so we know ourselves as loved by God. We know ourselves as sinners. And ultimately, we know ourselves as those who are being redeemed and restored into right relationship with ourself and with God. And so the basic idea here is to start a conversation and to introduce some thoughts that would be fuel for this journey. And the hope is that this week we would create some space to practice formation, to practice paying attention to our own hearts, to our own lives. And the truth is, Jesus never tells us that we shouldn't love ourselves. In fact, when he's asked what's the greatest commandment, he says, first, love God with everything you've got. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say love your neighbor, not yourself. He says as you love your neighbor, as you love yourself, or love your neighbor in the same way that you would love yourself. And so obviously it doesn't mean going around thinking I'm awesome. But there's a vision and an invitation towards a healthy self-love and self-acceptance. Which sounds nuts until you realize that at the heart of the gospel, in the nature of our salvation, God has declared you to be loved and accepted. God has declared you, therefore, as lovable and acceptable. And who are you to say otherwise? If God rightly assesses you, as one who's loved and accepted, then actually a right relationship comes to a point of loving and accepting the same self that God does. Loved by him, struggling with sin, but being redeemed and being restored. And so here's four suggestions for how you can live this out this week. And again, that's not like you're going to solve all the problems of formation in the next six days, but just a, a couple ideas. Here's what practicing formation might look like. There's a couple more in your booklet, too, if you want to check those. But the first is practice self-examination and confession. This is something Christians have done for years, and there's even prayers, the prayer of examine, and things like that, where as you Lie in bed at night before you go to sleep. Just run through the day prayerfully. Ask God, is there anything you want me to see, anything you want me to know about how I lived this day? And if there's sin that needs to be confessed, then do that. Confession, if you're really serious about it, yes, confess your sins to God, but if you're really serious, confess your sins to someone else. And not just the sins of your past, 
but the sins of your present. Seek help in dealing with your past. The journey towards formation for many of us is a long one that we need help with. Dealing with issues from our family of origin or trauma or abuse or, or simply just the childhood wound that so many of us carry around, even growing up in healthy families. So I, I uh, got to a point where I realized I needed more help in this journey of reconciliation. And so I see on a monthly basis now a spiritual director whose job it is is to help me listen to God. Other counselors, psychologists, people that are trained to do this. You may need to seek help, and there's no shame in that. Thirdly, I'd suggest developing what's been called a rule of life, which sounds kind of legalistic and religious. You can call it whatever you want. The idea is, in your pursuit of being formed into the image of Jesus, what would that look like? What are the rhythms and the practices that you would want to build into your life on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Uh, jot those down. And even we're still early in 2018, what would be your rule of life? Google rule of life if you want to learn more about that. Um, for prayer, for community, for, uh, for serving, for healthy relationships, for self-care, mind, body, soul. Develop a rule of life. You're not just going to start doing stuff. You've got to make a plan. And then finally, big idea here, but pursue your vocation. And when I say vocation, I don't just mean career or job. I mean your calling. Vocation comes from the word voca, the Latin root, vocal, voice. The thing God put you here to do. The song he wants your life to sing. What's the thing? that God has called you to do and to be. And maybe you'll make money doing it, maybe you won't. But a healthy, reconciled relationship with you looks like paying attention to your gifts, to your strengths, to your passions, to your joys, and chasing after those things. So, I want to encourage you, these are just some suggestions, but this week, let's pursue self-awareness, self-knowledge, healthy, godly, Christ-like self-love for the sake of displaying for the world the beauty of this gospel, that Jesus is making all things new, including you. Will you stand? And as we close, we'll read the Lord's Prayer together. It's in your booklet. Let this prayer form us as we pray it as we recite it, not just read it, but actually pray it on a regular basis. He says, this then is how you should pray. Pray this with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. As the band leads us in the last couple songs, I want to invite you to the table to come receive the body and blood of Christ broken and poured out for you.